Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. It's a big show for you today as we talk about new Morrison government legislation which will enable it to review the agreements made by councils, universities and state governments with other governments, foreign governments, including those of China. What will this mean for, amongst other things, this document, which is the agreement on the Belt and Road between the Victorian government and the People's Republic of China? So we'll be looking at that. And we'll also be looking across the Pacific at these two remarkable conventions that we've just seen. The Democrats and the Republicans have had to have virtual conventions in this COVID age, and uh, seemingly with two remarkably different results, uh, which have actually had some influence on the electoral race. So we'll be talking about the conventions, how they went, and what it actually means for November, for that famous Tuesday in November, uh, when the two parties go head to head. Uh, In our Books and Culture segment later on, we'll be looking at a fascinating new book called The Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell. Uh, We'll be looking at a classic film, La Dolce Vita by Fellini. And uh, we'll also, following on from last week's review where Berg talked about uh, Microsoft's flight simulator, uh, he's gone one step further and this week it's a board game called Root. So uh, our books and culture segment is certainly branching out a little bit. Speaking of Berg, he joins me via Zoom, uh, co-host uh, from RMIT University's blockchain blockchain innovation hub. Nearly got that out. Um, Chris, how are you? Almost with practice, Scott, you will figure that out. But thanks for having me. Yes, I've only been 78 episodes. I, I, yeah. I will get there one day. Uh, yeah. Also joining me via Zoom is our Director of Research, Daniel Wilde. G'day, Scott. How are you going? Very good, mate. Great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks. Uh, But let's get straight to it. Uh, As I mentioned, Chris, new legislation has been mooted uh, by the Foreign Minister and the Prime Minister. What what can you tell us about that? Right, it's been mooted, um, Scott. Uh, The um, Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, put out a press release um, a few days ago announcing that there would be new legislation to ensure the arrangements between states, territories, councils and universities have with foreign governments are consistent with Australian foreign policy. Um, The reforms, according to the press release, would give the foreign minister power to review existing and prospective arrangements um, uh, uh, between any any governments and, of course, foreign governments and arrangements that adversely affect Australian foreign relations or are inconsistent with foreign policy could be prevented or terminated. The foreign affairs minister, Maurice Pine, put it this way, we risk having an uncoordinated patchwork agreement, sorry, approach to contracts or MOUs or relationships and collaborations that could have an adverse effect on our foreign policy. According to the ABC, there's more than 130 current deals across Australian government and um, uh, and semi-government entities with 30 different countries that would come under review. I think there's a lot to talk about this, but why not throw immediately Dan? Dan, give us your hot take. What's your hot take on this this announcement? Uh, yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, I think that the well, it's a step in the right direction uh, in terms of what the government's proposing. As you say, it's uh, fairly vague, uh, not very clear on the specifics at this point in time. But I, I mean, I certainly have a lot of concerns, in particular with Victoria, with the signing onto the One Belt One Road um, initiative. There, uh, the problem with it really is that it's. <laughs> It gets marketed as this, uh, you know, infrastructure financing, you know, international cooperation over the financing of infrastructure. Now, who could be against that? It sounds so, it sounds so nice and important, but uh, it is a part of a much broader um, agenda of the Chinese Communist Party, which is to exert its economic, uh, political, and financial leverage uh, in nations um, around the world through providing financing for infrastructure and other um, such matters. Now. Um, this is not necessarily anything new. I mean, the history of uh, great power conflict and the history of international relations is that rising powers seek to you know, exert their dominance uh, around their region and then around the world through various kind of mechanisms. And I think the Chinese Communist Party has been very effective through you know, World Health Organization, United Nations, World Trade Organization, uh, through the One Belt, One Road, through its pretty sophisticated web of um, cultural social influence on university campuses, on schools. Um, indeed, in our um, very halls of parliament, such as in New South Wales with the Labor Party, um, Sam Destiari being exemplar 
of, of some of that uh, conflict and interference. So I think overall it's a step in the right direction. My concern with it, as it, as is often the case with a lot of uh, national security laws, is it's, it's open to um, a lot of discretion uh, to the federal minister and the federal government in terms of what direction they take it. And usually they put that under the banner of, of national security or, or confidence, uh, which sometimes is valid, but sometimes is used as a as a shelter and a mechanism for undertaking certain actions that maybe weren't always um, uh, stated at the time, but which are used as a bit of a used as a bit of a vehicle um, in some cases to be a bit secretive um, and to avoid transparency and accountability. So I have some concerns over it, but overall, it's it's certainly a step in the right direction. Should we talk? You've raised two points about the vagueness of the legislation or the or the um, potential use that the legislation might have, because it's not. It's clearly not going to be the um, anti-Belt and Road Initiative Act 2020. Um, uh, but why don't we talk? Let's let's start by talking about Belt and Road because um, well, well, just, uh, just, as the just first, well, just before first we thing do, pointed out. I, I just want to stop for a moment on the legislation itself, Chris. Just okay, to, let's talk about the legislation. Yeah, just let's before, do it in that order. Well, instead. well, there's two two things <laughs> I note about it, and I, and I can't resist, of course, the line. Isn't it great to see the Australian Constitution's external affairs power? actually being used for its intended purpose. <laughs> After yeah, instead a, of the dams. Yeah, instead, inst instead dams. of things like preventing dams in Tasmania uh, and very and uh, empowering the uh, Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act to uh, uh, basically stop development anywhere in Australia any time, um, this will actually to, will say Australia has one foreign policy, that we are a federation, but the... Uh, founding fathers were explicit that there could only be one foreign policy. It was the responsibility of the Commonwealth government to implement that policy. Um, and this, in a way, is auditing um, uh, the agreements, not so much from a cost-benefit analysis, but purely the tests are, is this aligned with uh, Australian foreign policy? That's, that's what was set out in the release. And the other thing I wanted to note about it is um, Twitter, as we know, is a is a cesspit, um, and uh, I, just as a side issue, or is this well, going? this is going somewhere. <laughs> believe it or not, I know you're always wondering. You know, is he going anywhere with this? But anyway, the uh, the reaction I saw on Twitter was like, "Ah, oh, Scotty for ma for marketing's looking for a distraction because Richard Colbeck's embarrassed himself in the Senate." Or you know, it was this kind of how you know this political angle that uh, supposedly was behind this announcement like it was some kind of random thing from from Morrison rather than you know the latest in a stream of decisions that have been made over a period of years dating back to the Turnbull government and I also want to note uh, with approbation uh, that Penny Wong the shadow foreign affairs minister her reaction was well if that's if it does what it says on the box well good because there is only one foreign policy for Australia. So um, it was uh, this this trope that somehow this is just politically or motivated for short-term political gains was something that I violently objected to, and it was great to see Penny Wong uh, rising above that. I, I think that's right, Scott, and I think it's, it's important for us to recognise when major reform um, movements are coming through the parliament, because it's very easy to get lost in the weeds and what we've seen is a sequence of national security focused foreign transparency and influence pieces of legislation that make in totality actually quite a significant um uh, uh, uh quite a significant reform movement and one of which this government and the turnbull government um less so the abbott government because that was a different story about national security um this government and the turnbull government actually make a coherent reform package and will become how we think about the legacy of this government as well but i I, I want to take Dan's criticism just a tad further. I really don't rate this sort of policy making, and I find it very hard to engage with policies like this that don't present us legislation, mainly because I don't think that the government deserves the benefit of the doubt when it comes to writing good legislation in this space. We saw how it absolutely catastrophically failed to write high quality legislation in, in one of its previous tranches, the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme in 2018, which was again instituted to try to prevent Chinese influence over the Australian political community. But its first targets were in fact conservatives like Tony Abbott, 
and um, uh, and libertarians like the CPAC Australia founder, Andrew Cooper, a good friend of um, uh, the show and of all of ours. Um, the government tends to write these things very poorly. So when you see a incredibly vague legislative proposal released in a press release, and then it back channeled to the newspapers that, oh, this is actually technically about Belton Road. I don't think they deserve the benefit of the doubt. You, we have to see legislation before we can give them credit for anything like this. I, I, how many times do we have to see this sort of policy fail before we can be skeptical about it? And I think, Dan, Dan uh, of course, you, you are rightly um, uh, skeptical in some ways about, about this legislation. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I'd uh, remark on that. I think one is that it's it's difficult for the government to explicitly say that we're going after the Chinese Communist Party or we're going after Belt and Road. That's one of the great challenges they face. So with the um, Foreign um, Transparency and Influence Scheme, one of the challenges with that was it was the, the bureaucrats that decided to go after um, Tony Abbott and Andrew Cooper. Now, I accept that that legislation was worded in a very vague way, uh, but the bureaucrats ultimately at the Attorney General's Department decided that they would um, go after certain Australians based upon their political beliefs, which I think is something that is a, a complete scandal and should never happen in a country like ours. I mean, a liberal democracy should not have within it, um, or at least within the bureaucracy, um, left-wing activist bureaucrats that are using a vague law to target people that they don't agree with. So that was that was the added, added component. So I accept that that would not have happened if the legislation was worded in a different way then the bureaucrats would have been more constrained. But even though the, the legislation was worded vaguely, um, I don't think all the fault lies with the government. I think a lot of the fault lies with the bureaucrats. Um, no, and in turn, you could argue that that's the fault of the government because the government can uh, fire and hire and change bureaucrats and, and do bits and pieces there. But I thought that was more so an astounding example of just how, uh, you know, um, how uh, compromised lots of parts of the bureaucracy um, really are. Can I just pick up that one, Chris? I'm sure you got some further questions uh, for Dan. Uh, that, that was a great experience, I think, Dan, in showing how we're building new institutions to deal with new challenges. Uh, in that case, the, the legislation, uh, I think, emerged, you know, as we've been discussing, out of a series of actions taken to uh, address the changed strategic environment. Um, Turnbull, in his memoirs, it's clear that, that, that Turnbull started off as someone who really wanted to believe the China story. And and let's face it, the China story was for 30 years remarkable. Everything ever since Deng Xiaoping, you know, there were a lot of good reasons to to get around what, what China was trying to do and the belief that somehow this would end in, in liberalisation. And uh, Turnbull was in office as Prime Minister when, you know, he was faced with the, the rude and blunt reality of the turn that it had taken under the, the current leadership. And... Uh, but that particular legislation uh, was vested then in the Attorney-General's Department, so it wasn't part of the defence establishment. And clearly the officers appointed to run it had no idea what it was for. <laughs> as, as you say, because the government had been too polite to say this is about China, uh, a group of bureaucrats um, went on a complete, uh, in a completely different direction. But that has now changed. Uh, this was drawn to Christian Porter's attention by us, amongst others, and I think it's fair to say that there are now very different people running that, and it's very much more integrated into um, uh, the, the broader network of Commonwealth uh, decision makers who are trying to coordinate against uh, the, the new strategic challenges. And, and this legislation is like another iteration of that. How they implement it, it'll be interesting to see. Apart from anything else, the thing I look forward to is transparency. Uh, for a long time, uh, after Dan Andrews signed the Belt and Road Agreement, we did not know what was in it, uh, which is remarkable. I mean, it's only three pages, um, and although it's only a MOU and it has no legal force, um, when you see phrases like, you know, the, the, the parties working together for, for policy coordination, um, uh, respect common interests and major concerns of each other, deepen mutual trust and beneficial cooperation... You know, all of these things are very loaded phrase, but we didn't even we didn't even have the document. It was released um, grudgingly. So, at the very least, this legislation I, I would would uh, hope would see that that would never ever happen again. I want to I want to make one quick point, um, and then we'll talk about Belton Road. But um, 
that that is great, Scott, and I'm really glad that you're comforted that the bureaucrats who made those mistakes or made those um, uh, attacks on Tony Abbott and Andrew Cooper are no longer there and responsibility has been changed. But I, I don't want to shock you. There may well <laughs> be in the future a Labor government. And when that Labor government comes through, they will change those bureaucrats out again. And that legislation that was written by a coalition government will be used against us um, because of the relationships that we have with some of our American partners in the liberty movement. Um, it, it, we, we cannot forgive a government for writing legislation that has that, that is badly written. No, I mean, they are in charge. They are the ones who write the legislation. They should write better legislation. But okay, let's talk about Belt and Road because um because that is the issue. So you're right. I mean, the the interesting thing about um uh, Belt and Road or the the Belt and Road proposal, which I was also reading this morning too. It's it's three pages of vagaries, but vagaries that with um, some worrying portents, like the policy coordination, like the idea of government directed investment market exposed or government directed, or I forget exactly the phrase, it's these classic Chinese bureaucratic um, uh, phrases. I, as I understand, they, the Belt and Road Initiative, we are waiting for a working group to report on a plan to identify opportunities. So it's not, as far as I can tell, a live policy. I was trying to figure out what the consequences of Belt and Road are right now. And to be honest, it looks a lot more like a propaganda coup for the Chinese Communist Party than a policy um, a policy statement. But I'd be interested, Dan, on where on how you see the status of Belt and Road in Victoria at the moment. Uh, well, as I see it, I think it's much, much more nefarious and worrying than that. My understanding is that uh, some of the proposed infrastructure projects, such as the so-called suburban rail loop, are to be funded through that One Belt, One Road um, initiative. Um, as an example. Now, that's deeply concerning because it's basically Chinese Communist Party money, um, you know, to use what will ultimately Chinese businesses or Chinese workers uh, to be building an infrastructure project that Victoria doesn't want or need um, that's going through some uh, suburbs of Melbourne that are highly concentrated uh, with a Chinese population, which is going to inflate their housing values and property value. Now, this is a deeply, deeply corrupt and concerning development. So I think it's much more than just a, a uh, PR exercise by the CCP. I mean, they are in this to win. You know, this is the thing to understand. They want to win in um, the great battle of uh, human history over values, over great power conflict. They, they're serious about winning this. And we saw that uh, with uh, one of the representatives at the National Press Club um, last week in an address that he gave um, they're one of the Chinese members of the uh, Chinese embassy in Australia, where, you know, amongst everything else, it was basically the National Press Club had become sort of a, a communications outpost of the Chinese Communist Party by giving a platform uh, to one of its uh, members to talk about uh, how Australia was hurting uh, China's feeling, you know, hurting the feelings of the Chinese people uh, through putting forward the legislation that we just talked about with the Morrison um, government. He was saying that uh, basically China doesn't want to influence or interfere in Australia's social or political culture. But that's exactly what they've been doing for years and years and years. And it's right before our very eyes in Victoria. So I'm extremely concerned um, about these developments. And I think they're much more than a, than a PR exercise. Yeah, Chris, I just want to uh, refer listeners to an article that uh, Dan and I wrote uh, for the autumn edition of the IPA review. It's now on our website and we'll link to it in show notes. It's, it's called Tunnel Vision. And it's about this... Um, uh, in belief in you know unlimited infrastructure spending, whether it's necessary or not, that the Victorian government has, and so the the Belt and Road Initiative has been quite explicitly talked about, as Dan said, in respect of this outer suburban rail loop, which is a project which is like somewhere between fifty and a hundred billion dollars on a on a good day in a state that's already uh, screaming past a hundred billion dollars. And, and in Victoria, it's never a good day. Yeah, and in Victoria, it's never a good day, and. Um, and uh, certainly the prospect it, it opened up for me. Uh, so this, so Andrews talks about it sometimes like it's an equivalent of foreign direct investment. But when it's some, under a Belt and Road thing, potentially what you have is uh, an agreement for, yes, it might be um, uh, Chinese loans for a project that uses Chinese builders and, as, as Dan said, potentially Chinese workers, like has happened on Belt and Road in other countries. Um, 
a heavy rail project, which is a, the most expensive way you can find a transport solution, using perhaps Chinese infrastructure. But then ultimately the revenue stream from that is not China. The revenue stream is is, is the Victorian taxpayer because any any transport, uh, heavy rail transport solution is only about 10% funded by users. The rest of it comes from the from the taxpayer. So that there's, there's um, uh, potentially a very serious consequence of something that might have a tail of 50, 60 years of funding, or it could could even be through uh, the equivalent of a, a PPP, like an infrastructure agreement, where all of this is wrapped up into one agreement. And uh, so, so any notion that this is just like foreign direct investment to me, it's much, much more than that, and much more concerning. So, Tunnel Vision, uh, uh, have a look at our website or uh, link in the show notes. But to what extent, um, Scott, and we should start talking about um, the US, but to what extent is this a criticism of, was the criticism that you're making, a criticism of just bad infrastructure spending, which of course the Andrews government, quite separate to China, um, uh, is is very guilty of. Oh yeah, um, it's a total Venn diagram. <laughs> there's, there's an issue with it's a, this. It's a perfect circle. Venn yeah, 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 yeah. It's On the one hand, you have, you, you have, you have a Labor government, which just wants to uh, shovel money to construction unions. Um, uh, you know, there's never too much uh, infrastructure that can be built, regardless of the cost-benefit analysis, regardless of you know, is it the is it the best solution or is it the most expensive solution? Um, you know, you might be able to tap into superannuation funds. Um, you know, they want they want laws changed to make it easier to grab superannuation monies to shovel into these projects. Um, so that's what this article talks about. So there, there's that there's that circle, and then it crosses over with uh, with Belt and Road and all those kind of issues. So I'll, t- I'll tell you I'll tell you my view here. So so I, I want to be really clear about this. I have no problem with Chinese foreign direct investment. I, it's absolutely the case that the um, Andrews government could write a bad contract and could um, uh, could could use that investment for a wasteful project, which of course it probably probably will, but that's an Andrews government problem. That's much less a Chinese problem. I think the pro- the, 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 the argument, uh, and but I am simultaneously opposed to the Belt and Road Initiative Agreement, partly because it's just a massive propaganda coup for the Chinese Communist Party. I think Turnbull, Malcolm Turnbull actually got it right when he declined signing onto the Belt and Road Initiative at a federal level um, when he was prime minister. When he when he pointed out that he welcomes he welcomed investment, but he oppo- but he wants to talk about specific investments. He doesn't want to talk about these generalities. He doesn't want to sign up to this large agreement with um, entirely vague things, so that Victoria or Australia can be popped down in the Belt and Road Initiative column. I think that's very bad. I think that brings with it a um, political cachet and some political dangers that we just shouldn't be adopting. Yeah, and Chris, that, um, I, I don't, think. Oh, sorry, sorry go on. Go on, no, please go on. Okay, sorry, I thought you were finished. Um, no, I was just going to make a couple of um, observations about that. I think I, I don't think we can distinguish between Chinese foreign direct investment and the Belt and Road. They all have the same objective, which is to increase the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, the investment coming into Australia from China is not from private entities. It's it's all backed by the CCP. Nothing goes in or out of China without the CCP's knowledge. And so we we can't just have this view that Belt and Road bad other Chinese investment good. Uh, we need to be very wary of all of it. And I, I think there should be stronger laws um, around the governance of uh, foreign direct investment from countries like China. I think if it's investment coming from the UK or America or the Netherlands or a country that shares our democratic liberal values, that's a different story. But when it's coming from a Chinese Communist Party um, who is fundamentally hostile to our values and our way of life, we can't just uh, be assuming that this is just a private investor looking to make some money in Australia. There's no there's no domestic benefit for the wide, you know, for mainstream Australians don't benefit. There's a small narrow group of elites that benefit through the inflation of, uh, you know, property values and so forth. But most people in Australia do not benefit from the investment coming in from China. And I think it's a serious concern. Um, and then there's also the influence on universities, uh, which is also a part of what the Morrison government um, has been looking into. And there's been a lot of leadership here from Dan Tian, who's the education, uh, federal education minister, who's uh, been uh, pretty active in the area of wanting to safeguard freedom of speech and to limit foreign interference on university campuses. Uh, But what we know, and I think this is deeply concerning to all Australians, is that we know there's a freedom of speech crisis on university campuses. 
We know that there's an academic freedom crisis on university campuses with the sacking of Professor Peter Reid. We know that there's a funding crisis on university campuses through reliance on foreign students. And we know that there's now a foreign interference crisis on university campuses, whether it's through Confucius Institutes, whether it's through the direct funding of academics in Australia to provide um, uh, so-called research, which is there to give a, a particular view of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, this is a potentially very deep and very wide um, uh, universities are potentially very uh, compromised and perhaps you know, fatally compromised uh, and they no longer speak for mainstream Australian values of freedom of speech or, uh, or the pursuit of truth or liberal democracy and uh, I think there's a, a big concern for all of Australians what's happening right now. It's certainly um, it's a neat analogy to the Conf the Confucius Institutes to um, uh, Belt and Road. Chris's point about Belt and Road was the the propaganda value. The what Confucius Institutes actually do on the dozen or so university campuses where they're in place is probably the least interesting thing about them. Um, you know, whatever number of students uh, enrol in Chinese language courses, Chinese culture courses, um, I can't imagine it's it's huge. And the ripple effects are probably small, um, but it's the agreement that the universities make. They become um, uh, central to what they're trying, to, their broader China strategies for. And we've seen this very clearly at, say, the University of, of Queensland, um, where the consul general has has been made, I think, an associate professor. Um, the uh, the vice chancellor was for a time. Um, affiliated with the Confucius Institute. Um, so we've got very little idea what they actually do. Um, and it, but it, it, it's more that it's part of the, the, the web of networks that the, the uh, CCP is able to build uh, with these institutions. So I, I will be interested to see uh, what happens when, you know, this law's passed and they start to review these agreements because I suspect the agreements themselves won't actually say very much. The commitments uh, will be moderately anodyne. I'm not sure that this will actually lead to the Morrison government um, essentially making Confucius Institutes illegal because I'm not sure that that's how they work. What they're really about is it's just another lever in the in the relationship. Well, could be true. <laughs> <laughs> um so, Chris, shall we talk about America? Speaking of superpowers. <laughs> Speaking of superpowers, let's move on to the other one. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, as, as every, every listener to the podcast knows, um, because it's uh, international news, as always, in the last um, uh, couple of weeks, both the Democrats and the Republicans have had their national conventions when um, uh, to nominate who is going to be the president or presidential candidate um, for the 2020 election. Obviously, in the middle of coronavirus, these were uh, not the sort of conventions that we're used to. They were not held in these giant ballrooms. They were not parades of um, party speakers in the same way. They were not um, uh, constantly uh, constant streams of, of cheering um, delegates and so forth. Um, why don't we break them down? Let's talk about each of them individually. Dan, we'll start with the Democratic Convention. So the Democratic Convention, which was held first. What, what was your what was your takeaway from from the Democrats? What was your takeaway from the Biden for President, Biden Harris President 2020 campaign? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. I think it, it lacked a lot of enthusiasm and um, energy and optimism. Uh, it was quite, I thought, quite a dark. A portrayal of the times that we live in and a dark portrayal of America uh, in terms of uh, it was really around identity politics, racism, you know, structural oppression, uh, these kinds of issues that they talked about. I wanted to just focus on one part of the Democratic National Convention that, surprising to me, hasn't received a lot of discussion or uh, coverage in the media was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's um, one-and-a-half-minute address uh, which ended with an endorsement of Bernie Sanders rather than Joe Biden. Now, I thought that was probably the most significant speech in, at the convention. And the reason why is, is, you know, Cortez has fallen off the radar a little bit. So she had a big bang um, over the last couple of years, primarily with the Green New Deal. Um, we haven't really heard a whole much of her or about her over the last few months, but she gave a one and a half minute address. And I didn't agree with one word of it. I want to be clear about that. But... 
it was important and we need to take her and her ideas seriously. She basically outlined the, what I would class as the identitarian wing of the Democratic Party's view of America and of the future. And it was basically, you know, America is irredeemably racist. It was founded on colonialism, which is violent. Um, that there needs to be what she referred to as a 21st century human rights agenda around, you know, sexism, homophobia, racism. So some of the usual talking points um, that that wing has. But there's a couple of points. One is that she represents a not, in, in, a not insignificant proportion of the Democratic Party base. Um, she represents a not insignificant proportion of American voters. Uh, and she is a young, uh, relatively young congresswoman uh, who is having a long run up whether it's to try and become speaker, to try and become, you know, run for president. Uh, but she is someone that needs to be taken seriously um, in terms of what she says and the ideas that she promulgates. And, you know, I just I don't agree with, again, anything that she said, but I thought she was a very effective spokesperson for those views. And not to, I don't want to talk too much about the Cold War book that I'm going to be talking about later because I don't want to <laughs> say everything now that I have to say about it. But just one point I would make that Caldwell makes in his book is we can't just laugh at her. We can't laugh at their ideas. Like Caldwell basically says the right have been laughing at the left since 1963. You know, and where has that gotten conservatives? So the point is that it's important to engage on the substance of what they're saying and to actually have an alternative vision for the future um, that actually combats the vision that's being provided by the identitarian left. Well, one of, the, one of the things, though, in terms of the convention, like the telling thing for me there is she got one and a half minutes. So this is clearly uh, the... Democratic National Committee is um, uh, knows very well that uh, that that wing of the Democrat Party has the potential to make them unelectable. That clearly the Republicans are going to say this is the Republican Party. So they they very deliberately kept her um, to a minute and a half. So in the sense that they do know the the game to that extent, that is critical. That is their only hope of winning. And the re and the whole reason why they've got this sock puppet Biden. Um, uh, propped up there is uh, because he represents uh, an older tradition and, and a more middle-of-the-road prospect for the Democrats. Um, what, is, what astounded me, though, was um, they, they could manage to that extent, but the actual uh, the visuals, the atmospherics of the thing were just terrible for the, for the party of Hollywood um, to produce something that just looked so bad. Um, over a period of so many days is 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 almost beyond me. Chris, did <laughs> you watch? It? Did, did you watch any of it? I mean, it was it was uh, just dreadful. It, it was a it was like these Zoom calls that you know half of a you know half of the Western world stuck on you know all day. Surely, surely they <laughs> well, could have done Zoom. better than that. It was over Zoom as well. Yeah, I mean, oh, really? yeah. well, Zoom Zoom is the most stable platform. I I've, I have to say that given I've tried every other one, <laughs> but um, I, I'll tell you what what really struck me. Um, Joe Biden has a 80-page party platform. The Democrats have a platform going into 2020 that covers off a wide range of very radical in some parts um, uh, policies. Uh, for instance, he's got a environmental justice plan, environmental justice that is easily as ambitious as the, the uh, um, uh, AOC um, Green New Deal that was sort of shattered down, sort of adopted seems like it's been entire almost entirely adopted by the um by the democrats by mainstream democrats now um but the whole convention touched almost nothing of that rather radical set of policy proposals it only wanted to hit two things or really one thing which is trump and trump is bad at coronavirus not even trump is I mean, they, if you recall, if you think back to the start of the year in the before times, they impeached Trump. They impeached him, presumably for reasons. Um, and we've discussed and debated that, uh, if I recall. But they did not talk about that at all. They had one critique, and it was Trump is um, doing very badly at the coronavirus. Um, one the other thing that they didn't do, which turns out I think we've seen was a pretty big mistake in recent weeks biden did not address in any significant way the ongoing violence in the united states in many of these um in many of these traditionally liberal cities and it turns out as that violence has gotten more attention and obviously worse that this is a really significant liability for him so overall regardless of what you think of 
Joe Biden, regardless of what you think of the race itself. It was an incredibly narrow, I think very carefully um, uh, market-tested uh, uh, convention that probably failed to hit most of the themes about what people are thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, the coronavirus is a real issue, but also at the same time, um, the Republicans want to shoot that violence away to the Democrat Party, and um, and this was a huge missed opportunity to tackle that. Yeah, I think that's that's right, Chris. And I think when when you look at the the Joe Biden situation, and you mentioned the issue of violence, and you're right, it was only the last couple of days where it was only this morning I saw actually he said that um, uh, riots are not protesting. You know, that's the strongest statement that he's made. He's yet to actually condemn really outright what's been happening over the last few months. But um, they've obviously got internal polling that shows that this is a disaster um, for them uh, in terms of their, it's taken them weeks and weeks and weeks to say anything negative about any of the violence that's been going on that's been aided and abetted by a lot of Democratic donors as well. So they're, they are neck deep in all of the anarchy that's taken place across America at the moment. The other point that I would make um, is uh, in relation to uh, Joe Biden, I think, um, Scott said this work, what was it, Sock Puppet, uh, Sock Puppet I think, <laughs> yep. Scott said, uh, which is largely, I think, largely true that he's been put there to try and win over these, you know, suburban voters, you know, relatively normal mainstream Americans. But uh, what we see, and we might touch on this in a little bit, is, is Trump is, is making this stick to Biden big time. The Black Lives Matter, the violence, um, he is making this stick to the Democrats as much as he can. Um, and just one last thing, Chris, you mentioned the impeachment. When was that? That was the first time I've heard that word for months. <laughs> all that we heard, it was all that we heard for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it's another example of how, you know, ever since 2016, the Democrats have been trying to get rid of Trump one way or the other. And they can't do it because they know they can't beat him at the ballot box. Um, and they basically accepted that they're going to lose, I think. And that's why they're not talking about impeachment anymore because it polled so badly. And it was an example of how out of touch they are with normal people that they thought, you know, getting rid of a democratically elected president was somehow going to benefit them in the polls um, is, is not really, a, I, I would say, a path to winning over the hearts and minds of the majority of Americans. Well, why don't, just to stick with that. So, so, Dan, put yourself in a democratic strategist's shoes. What would you suggest that, you, what would you suggest to Joe Biden or to a democratic strategy? Um, how would you go from here if you wanted to win? Uh, I would uh, basically take Trump's agenda um, and make it a little bit more democratic friendly. I mean, a lot of tra Trump's agenda, whether it's on trade, um, on um, workers, wages, manufacturing, they are similar to what the basically main, or the Biden, you know, you might say the Biden so-called centrists that the Democrats used to have at the centre of their agenda in the 70s and the 80s. So it's quite a familiar agenda in lots of parts to the, to the Democrats. So I would say um, adopting... Um, large parts of the Trump agenda would, would go a long way to them winning back some of their voters in the swing states that they need to win. They're not going to lose California. Right? This is the thing. They're going to win New York. They're going to win California no matter what kind of agenda they have. What they actually need to win is Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida. And I think if they had somebody that took on, you know, okay, we're going to actually um, limit illegal immigration. We're going to revisit some of these trade deals. You know, Trump was right on China. We're going to revisit some of this. They would actually nullify, I think, a lot of the um, impact that Trump has had on on swing. It's not just swing states. It's actually a very small number of counties within those swing states. We're only talking about maybe less than 100,000 voters that they need to win around, but they're not going to do it with Black Lives Matter messaging. Yeah, Chris, the, um, the other thing about the suburban voters, of course, is uh, the Democrats were targeting the uh, particularly suburban women on the basis of you know, Trump just being a hideous individual. That was essentially the thing that they bashed away at during their convention. And in some ways they've been gazumped really by what's happening in the cities, the violence in the cities. And I find it remarkable to look back, even, you know, what we've talked about it in looking forward over the past year. Um, you know, we were tracking some of this. Uh, you know, say Andy No in... Uh, Portland uh, talking about the violence on the streets with Antifa essentially owning the streets and, you know, the complete indifference um, of the, uh, of the th local authorities in, in Portland. When, when, you know, when we were concerned about this and, you know, American friends were concerned about this, um, but the response of the Democrats and, and the mainstream media wasn't like a counter-narrative very much at all. It was really uh, just to not report on it. It was just not discussed. 
and um, and that's been the, the strategy all the way through. So it felt like a fringe issue in a way. It felt like people like us were noticing that um, uh, Republicans were noticing in the US. And what's just happened, it is remarkable, it's all happened just in, and it's because of partly of what the Republicans did at the convention. Trump knew what he was doing when he when he put the um, the federal troops in to protect the, uh, the federal buildings in Portland and created that confrontation. The media reported on that. They they seized on that as oh, isn't Trump terrible? Look what he's doing, and and uh, and they were snatching people off the streets, which has uh, uh, our libertarian friends rightly concerned. But suddenly, it, it it made it the story. It could no longer be ignored. And then and then we saw and that and then we see the you know the insanity of you know uh, mostly peaceful you know two dead in mostly peaceful protests sort of headlines um, that are becoming famous and and this has all happened just in about two weeks and partly it's because the republicans knew exactly what they're doing so they're now saying to the suburban voters that biden was after do you want your city to look like this that is a hell of a message well so let's move on to the republican platform or sorry not platform republican convention um uh uh damn um so what was your take on the Republican convention? <laughs> Why don't we go straight into it? <laughs> I, I thought it was a very good convention, um, difficult to assess or to have any comparison because, as you mentioned before, this is a pretty unique um, situation, but we can compare it to the Democratic one. And I was thinking in terms of the production values and the imaging, uh, the, the imagery um, and uh, how things looked was much better, uh, more positive. Uh, I thought Trump's speech was... Uh, very important and significant because it built upon, um, I think I talked about this last time I was on um, this podcast, was uh, the Mount Rushmore speech that he delivered. I thought this was a a more sophisticated and a more developed elaboration of that speech that he gave. And I think it's also the first time we've really seen an enunciation of what the main themes will be going into um, November. It's hard to believe that it's only two months um, away from that election because usually the main theme we already know what the main themes are sort of by April May June but we don't really know what they are um, yet or I would argue until basically Trump's speech where he outlined it's going to be uh, MAGA ah, as I call it so make America great again again so he sort of went that, through his- that really rolls off the tongue I, I actually really like it and I think a lot of people like it as well um, keep America great was, was probably better, his original idea, but Make America Great Again Again uh, is quite good. Uh, and basically, it has outlined, well, I made it great once, so I'll make it great again. You know, we had a great economy, coronavirus came because of China, um, and now we're going to bring the jobs back again. So he's basically doing a rerun of 2016 when it comes to the economy. As Scott mentioned, he's got a very, very, very powerful law and order um, message, and he's been incredibly nuanced and sophisticated. The Democrats have been trying to goad him uh, into sending in the National Guard to basically... Um, you know, they want images of Trump's troops uh, basically shooting people up, and he's been very good at resisting that and avoiding um, that potential issue there. Um, and then he's also taken on these culture wars, which I think is important. He's, again, outlined, you know, the American way of life, and he's put um, himself as president as the defender of American values and the American way of life against those who want to um, undermine it um, economically, um, constitutionally, um, and socially. So I thought it was a very... Now, important speech, a very significant speech, um, and outlined a very clear path for November. Um, so I've got a couple of points um, to make or, or discussion points to raise. Um, so so you're absolutely right. The, the return America to prosperity, and I'll quote from the speech, we will again build the greatest economy in history, quickly returning to full employment, soaring incomes and record prosperity. Um, first of all, I mean, I, I don't like it when when um, politicians think that they um, have brought the economy into prosperity. I don't think that's what they do. But more importantly, what do you think he thinks he's going to do to do that? So I read the speech and I, I watched part of it, but I read the rest of the speech. And I'm not sure he knows or anybody in his administration or in the US government knows why they we were, sorry, the United States was prosperous and 2019 and if if they don't know why how can we assume that they will do again there's not much of a clear plan here yeah i think that's a good observation there wasn't a lot of specifics what trump did talk about is what he did do on the economy tax cuts deregulation 
um, energy independence, getting out of the Paris Climate Agreement, um, which are all important contributions. But I think you make a good observation that, well, what is he actually going to do? He did talk about having more tax cuts, um, which is great. Uh, Joe Biden will raise your taxes, um, is what he says. But I, I agree. I don't think there's a whole lot of specifics that he put forward um, in his uh, speech at that time. In terms of what created the um, prosperity in terms of, well, at least what, what did Trump do in terms of policy um, that enabled uh, private enterprise to flourish? I think it was basically the things he outlined. Um, he had fairly significant tax cuts. He had not insignificant deregulation cuts. We've done some analysis of the Trump red tape cuts and found that they actually did reduce red tape, not by necessarily <laughs> a significant amount. but they Which, did which as you point out, is incredibly rare for government. It is rare. Usually governments... <laughs> Yeah, initially governments say we've cut red tape and, you know, they, they have, technically speaking, got rid of, you know, redundant regulation. And, but, um, and indeed, the Abbott government did reduce red tape by a little bit. In some analysis we did, uh, they brought it down a fraction. But, you know, usually there's nothing substantial, but they did introduce not insignificant cuts. The Makeda Centre at George Mason University, who are pioneers in regulatory analysis, also put out analysis saying, well, Trump's basically the first guy uh, in three decades to have any significant cuts of regulation. So... There were some significant things that he that he did that I think contributed to the economic um, success of America up until uh, basically you know March April um, of this year. Well, one of the, and one of the things, Chris, uh, is so I as I say I, I my my feeling my observation and the poll and watching the polls as well is two weeks is a long time in politics. If a week's a long time in politics, this has been a lifetime in terms of how it's turned around. And the Democrat strategy was clearly tying Trump to COVID, not just because of uh, the human toll of the disease, but obviously the economic devastation uh, that it's left in its wake, uh, both uh, in its own right and because of the associated lockdowns. There are also early signs that it is turning around. So Trump's pitch is, is essentially, you trusted me to do it the first time, trust me for the recovery. Um, and so even if there's nothing new in it, it's sort of like, I did it once, I can do it again. And what must be worrying for the Democrats is um, pandemics have their pattern, as we've discussed on this podcast, Chris. And it now appears that um, basically the, there's a natural fall in uh, fatality rates, hospitalisation rates, severity rates of the disease. Essentially, it's, it's, as it's swept through America, we now seem to be on the other side of the curve even in places like like Florida, so that so to build a whole democratic convention around this strategy of you know look at what Trump's done with COVID. By the time you get to November, the pitch is going to look very different, I think. You know that that's absolutely right, and um, and the challenge that the Democrats have put themselves in is that they've they've loaded it up entirely on the coronavirus, and if um, and if that situation changes for the better, as we all hope that it does in the United States, um, then that leaves them searching for a new message. Um, and that new message is very, very unclear. It provides, and in fact, it has over the last two weeks, provided a huge opportunity for attention to move towards the um, street violence, quite rightly so, in my view. Um, uh, but, you know, that that creates a, a huge problem. Before we, before we move on, I did want to give my hot take, Scott. Go ahead, um, Chris. Uh, my and, and this is not about this election campaign, but it became really clear. So when I watched the speech, it opened with um, uh, Donald Trump coming down from the stairs of the White House. And I hated that, not because I care about whether the White House is being used for political purposes or not, because that's one of these legal fictions what uh, is it, the to amuse the Hatch Act. Um, I think it is. To, yeah, the Hatch Act. So that, that's a legal fiction to amuse lawyers and amuse public commentators about um, whether someone's. I mean, imagine doing politics in the White House. How horrifying! Um, what I hated about that is it reminded me of um, the increasing imperial presidency that dates back well before Donald Trump, long, long, long before Donald Trump. But every time I visit DC, it feels like an imperial power, these huge monuments. And that visual of the presidential speech in front of the White House just made that just really visually clear to me and reminded me why I much prefer a parliamentary system like our own. 
with a, with a monarch, in fact, where you can invest. Well, with a, mon- with a but but a monarch we never see, right? So yeah, yeah, so, you invest you invest all that uh, ceremonial power in the in the monarch. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, you could say that. But um, but I, it just really reminded me of something. I'm not American. I, I don't have a, a stake in their self vision of their of their government. But it just reminded me of something that I, I'm really uncomfortable yeah. with whenever I visit DC. Yeah, it's 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 a long way from sort of Republican virtue, and uh, it is the the modesty the, the the modesty of Republican virtue. I don't think I don't think we're there anymore. No, no, quite a reasonable point. Uh, thank you, Chris. We will move on in a moment. I just wanted to remind listeners that uh, Looking Forward is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. Uh, if you're not already a member of, of the Institute of Public Affairs, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can uh, join up and become one of over 6,000 Australians who are supporting our research, supporting our work in getting out the messages of freedom all over Australia and uh, producing uh, podcasts like Looking Forward, um, uh, the Young IPA podcast, Viral Banter, and uh, Gideon Rosner's new The IPA with you amongst many, many other things. And and if you're thinking about it, just go and have a look at the website and have a poke around. And uh, and if members, of course, are now receiving the IPA review, which I, Scott Hargraves, am the editor of and will continue to plug at every available opportunity on this podcast because <laughs> otherwise what's the point of doing it? That is our cue to move on to our books and culture segment. Did I mention there are great book reviews from time to time in the IPA review? Maybe. Anyway. Um, Dan, you've been reading a book. I have been reading a book, Scott. Um, so congratulations. Was, uh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's been a long time. It's been a long journey and I got there, so thank you. Um, I mentioned that uh, Christopher Caldwell has written a great book, The Age of um, Entitlement. I mentioned it in my discussion of um, the Democratic National um, Convention. Basically, Caldwell um, writes about um, the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Period, um, in the United States and traces that through to today. And what he basically wants to do is, is looking at everything that's going on in the world, looking at everything that's going on in America, he wants to say, well, what, what, <laughs> what's caused all this? Why are there so many, you know, woke corporations? Why is identity politics taken hold? Um, what's going on? Now, he basically traces it back to the Civil Rights Act. Um, and he basically says it, the Civil Rights Act in the US set up um, basically a different constitution. So you had the original constitution and I'll, I'll sort of summarise and paraphrase, uh, was based on essentially equality before the law, equal human dignity. He acknowledges all the obvious imperfections at the time, uh, most obviously exemplified by um, slavery, but nonetheless, the fundamental principles were based on human equality. Um, The um, Civil Rights Act ushered in a new um, era, a new kind of alternative constitution based upon, uh, you know, uh, privileges for certain people based upon um, their immutable characteristics, such as their race, um, or in that particular case, their race, but then it then metastasized to go on to gender um, and other such, uh, you know, homosexual rights, and he traces that through um, to the present day. Um, I think it's a very important contribution to the discussion of, well, you know, what exactly has happened over the last um, 40 years. Um, his main, what I've always been interested in is why, one of the things that's interesting to me is why are corporations the way they are now? Like that's a big question I have. Why are they so willing to um, support like Black Lives Matter? Why are they willing to support what seem to be very radical causes that are out of step with what a lot of people believe and think? And I've not really been able to come up with a, or I haven't read a very compelling argument. I mean, I think in some ways it's probably profitable for them in certain contexts. Uh, Michael Lind has a few arguments basically says, well, corporations have always been quote-unquote woke. It's just they look a bit different now than they did before, which I don't quite agree with, but it's a good contribution. Um, the thing I like about Caldwell is he has a go at answering that question, and he basically says it was just uh, corporations had to set up all these massive HR bureaucracies and lawyers and everything else to deal with the uh, the, the myriad and, and the web of um, laws that they can get caught up in if they don't, for example, have an, a certain number of uh, you know African-Americans on their board or whatever it might be, that the political correctness and the identity politics that followed, and that's been promulgated largely in the private sector, not by government, um, he argues is the result of government laws to begin with, which I think is an important contribution. I don't quite agree with all of that because corporations quite often seem to want to you know, get out in front of the debate and actually push it further than what they would need to go, I would argue, to maintain some kind of legal protection. But I think it makes an important contribution to that debate, which is in many ways one of the central questions of our time. I mean, in that sense, uh, 
how do you, how does he respond to the um the the observation that this is something that's happening simultaneously around the world so it's not just that there was a u.s constitution that was about equal rights it's a it's a general trend so when i when i did all the research into the history of freedom of speech and how it was affected by anti-discrimination law what was striking was how resistant the united states had been to at least the freedom of speech aspects of of those whereas every other developing world nation had um, introduced its own um, anti-hate speech or anti-discrimination legislation that affected affected speech rights. So, so is it a is it a is it a global story or is it an American story? Yeah, good question. No, it's American. Yeah. So I was that's why I wanted to talk about the corporate stuff because that's something that's more relevant to Australia and what we're probably more familiar with. Because a lot of the civil rights story is not familiar to us. So no, it's an American-centric story, which is quite interesting. You mentioned um, anti-discrimination laws, which I think is a good analogy for what. We have in Australia and other Western countries, and they also have them in America. But I think um, it's a it's a bit different as we have here. And he makes an observation. So his last two chapters are uh, winners and losers. So he talks about the winners, basically, of the new constitution, and then the losers, as he argues, under the new um, under the new constitution. And what he basically says is that um, what we now have is you know, first it started with you know African Americans, and then you had um, women, and then it was uh, people based on their sexual orientation were seeking protections or privileges under anti-discrimination law. And now what we have most recently is, is Christians and religious people who are now seeking to have those similar protections. And now he kind of intimates that it's, it's now moving towards white people. You know, and this is his great concern that once you go down the rabbit hole of identity politics based on anti-discrimination law, um, why would it stop where you want it to stop? Like there's no this is the great threat of identity politics when you move to the new constitution of identity politics and away from the old constitution of, of, of equality, um, there's no telling where this is going um, to stop. So that's one of, I think, his, his warnings um, that he has uh, towards the end of the book. Chris, that's, um, I think we need something lighter to balance up <laughs> the, the end of Western civilization as it's playing out in America. That, that does, sound like, <laughs> does sound like a fascinating book, uh, Dan, and look forward to your uh, review in the uh, summer edition of the IPA Review because um, that's a very, very important work and much to unpack there. Uh, Chris, what have you been looking at? That's right. So, so as you pointed out at the opening of the show last week, I did Microsoft Flight Simulator. So I did a computer game. Now we're rolling back even further, and I'm uh, I've been playing a board game this week, Scott. I've been playing a board game with my family. Um, uh, the game that I've been playing is called Root, a game of woodland might and right. It is a fairly recent game. Um, it is uh, a a um, very cute collection of really beautiful pieces about little animals that live in a forest, but in fact are at constant war with each other um, with some fairly sophisticated um, political implications, some fairly well-developed, um, uh, almost ideological interpretation. So it's Hobbesian uh, Hobbes in its outlook. <laughs> I'm going I'm to try, try to very quickly talk you through the plot. So the birds, the airy dynasty, once ruled the forest, and they're like a militaristic dictatorship but they were um, kicked out of the forest by the Marquis de Cap, who's a sort of monarchical ruler um, uh, that you that the, the birds would like to win back their place. Then there's the Woodland Alliance, which is a rebellion against um, everyone because they don't want these two great powers to fight over the same space. So they can do these revolts and destroy little settlements and all that sort of thing. Anyway, so it's actually a really brutal war game hidden amongst an incredibly cute thing. Now, so I've been playing it with my kids. My nine-year-old has been particularly affected by that, by the game, because it is it is both incredibly cute and incredibly brutal. So it's great fun. We're all stuck at home at the moment. I'm stuck at home with um, kids who are of the age that they are loving learning about board games. Um, so get into board games, people. Um, and get into board games. I'm not a huge board game person, but but I'm, I'm now hopping on board game websites get into board games if you're only familiar with the ones that um were available when you were a child so i was a child in the 1980s and early 1990s um where the games that we played were monopoly and scrabble and i guess risk um uh, games have developed so incredibly fast and it, there's such an incredible 
creative energy. I think in part because of the development of online communities or board game fanatics. Um, uh, so <clears throat> if you get a chance and if board games are your thing, um, or if you've got, or, or if board games aren't your thing, but you've got young kids or teenage kids, uh, get into them. Scott, you've got teenage kids. Do you and play the, board games? The, no, no uh, and uh, you're quite right about the generations. Um, just last night, the 15-year-old was explaining why Monopoly is like the worst thing on earth, and she will absolutely. And I have to agree with her. The game board games we grew up with were mostly terrible, and I have this Pavlovian aversion to the damn things, and only play them again because of um, uh, the kids and uh, things like Carcassonne and so on. We've occasionally broken out there, and I know I should listen to you, Chris. That there are board games that you. Uh, the new generation that's much more interesting, much more fun, but uh, I'll never recover from being made to play Monopoly when I was a kid. I just hate it so much. <laughs> um, but thanks for the tip. Awesome. I'll pass it on no to, my, uh, to the 15-year-old. Um, speaking of uh, things you do when you're bored during lockdown, uh, I love movies. We all love movies. But I've, mo I've always been uh, into Hollywood movies, particularly sci-fi. And, uh, you know, the closest thing I come to is sort of an art director would be someone like Tarantino or whatever who um, sort of broke out of the genre. So the whole thing about classic European movies escaped me in my, my youth. But once I'd watched everything on Netflix, it's like, what am I going to do now? So I finally went back and saw a classic, uh, La Dolce Vita by Fellini. Um, this was a film I'd heard about as a classic. The uh, great critic Roger Ebert had always had often referenced it, and I'd thought, mm, "Yeah, that's interesting." But um, uh, 1960, uh, and uh, this, uh, yeah, La Dolce Vita translates as "The Sweet Life," and I always assumed it was some sort of uh, hymn of praise to um, Italian culture and how nice it is to to live in Rome in fun times. Little did I realise what a remarkable work of art this movie actually is. There is a reason I discovered when I watched it why film critics typically rate it uh, somewhere in the top ten of the all-time great movies. Um, it is about a journalist played by uh, Marcello Mastrigliani um, in, uh, who's basically covering... Um, Society, you know, it's a, it's the gossip pages for for a newspaper, and his photographer is called Paparazzo, um, and this this is where the phrase paparazzi come from because they 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 dominate this movie chasing celebrities around the streets of Rome, but it, I just did not know I'm going to have to watch it again because I didn't know what it was about because the opening chapter is uh, is like the sweet life it, it it is beautiful people in Rome there's a beautiful actress. Anita Ekberg, who famously walks through the Trevi Fountain, and it's this sort of romantic view. And then it just gets darker and darker and darker. There's there's suicides and, and terrible parties, and, you know, they're confronted by the meaninglessness of existence. And it turns out that, um, you know, and then you realise that the, the, the film is also been contrasted with all this religious Im imagery, starting with a remarkable... Uh, the actual opening scene is of a, a massive um, uh, uh, statue of Jesus being flown by helicopter above above Rome. Um, uh, the images of the Madonna. There's, there's all sorts. This juxtaposition of religious themes with decadence, essentially, um, uh, which I didn't realise was going on. There's a there's a theory that the seven stanzas correspond to the you know descent. Uh, into the circles of hell that was in Dante's Inferno. It's um, just a massively complex movie, which I don't understand at all. Uh, on IMDb, there's a lovely uh, review by uh, Roger Ebert, um, uh, who I think of as the doyen. I, lo I love going back to find a movie old enough that it could be reviewed by a guy who's been dead for over a decade. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, yeah... If you're into European art films, you've probably already seen it. If you're not, this is one that you might actually venture into and, and spend some time unpacking. So that's that's my culture pick for this week. But um, uh, not not my usual run of sci-fi films or Marvel <laughs> Marvel films, uh, but something a bit more in the in the art tradition. La Dolce Vita. It is, it is a it is a great movie, but I found that you have to be a bit in the mood for it yeah um i had to give it a second go and just a, another shout oh, out it's again. three hours um, yeah. roger ebert has always been my go-to reviewer you don't always agree with him 
but he's always an interesting read um, and it was very sad when he passed away. It was indeed. Um, out of Chicago, I think, uh, Roger Ebert, great yeah. man. Chicago's, Chicago sometimes. Yep, that's right. Very good. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for those culture picks, gentlemen. This has been Looking Forward for another week. Uh, big shout-out to my co-host, Chris Berg from RMIT University. Thanks, Scott. A special guest today, Dan Wild, Director of Research at the IPA. Thanks, Scott. Uh, thanks for joining us, Dan. Uh, remember, this has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. Go to ipa.org.au and also do have a look at the show notes for some of the things uh, that we've referenced today. Uh, thanks also to Josh and Steve in the control room. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. Thank <laughs> you.